when a startup finds product market fit, the adoption of that product can grow rapidly, turning a startup into a high-growth company. All of a sudden, a startup that was struggling to find its first customer is bombarded with new challenges. The startup has to hire tens of new employees. This requires raising capital, so the startup has to meet with investors and lawyers. A rapid influx of new customers puts a strain on the engineering and the customer service elements of the company. There is too much work to do, and there's only so much time in each day. The CEO of a high-growth company is up late into the night, answering emails and losing sleep. But these are good problems to have, and so the company is in a state of exuberance. The CEO must balance psychological health and the stressful task of scaling a company. Elad Gill is an entrepreneur and author of High Growth Handbook, a book of lessons and guidelines about how to navigate a startup that has found product market fit and is beginning to scale. High Growth Handbook also includes interviews with experienced entrepreneurs such as Mark Andreessen and Patrick Collison, whom Elad met with as he wrote the book. Elad joins the show to discuss his book and his own personal lessons of working with companies such as Twitter, Google, Stripe, and Coinbase. Elad has worked at several of these high-growth companies and invested in others. He's gathered a lot of wisdom from these different experiences, and it's really valuable to find these lessons in his book as well as in this interview. Before we get started, I want to mention that we are looking for several roles at Software Engineering Daily. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs to find these roles. We're looking for several journalists, a podcaster, and an entrepreneur in residence. If you're interested in any of these roles, you can check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. We'd love to take a look at your resume. Elad Gill, you are an entrepreneur and the author of High Growth Handbook. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Ah, oh, thanks so much for having me. Your book is about how to operate a high-growth company, and there are methods of running an early-stage startup that don't work as well when that startup enters high-growth. There are certain processes that start to break. When a company enters into that high-growth phase, what are the things that start to break? Yeah, I think the short answer is almost everything um, at, at one company or another. So a lot of the things that tend to break the most, though, tend to happen around things that are very people intensive. So coordination, planning, product road mapping, like all those things get dramatically more complicated. But the other piece of it is the complexity of a early stage company relative to the complexity of a late stage company is pretty small. In other words, the surface area of a early stage company is basically find product market fit, uh, don't run out of money and don't pay with your co-founders, which are, honestly are all three very hard things to do. And for a late-stage company, you just have a lot more complexity in terms of adding new product lines, developing new different ways to distribute your product or market your product, internationalization, buying other companies, late-stage rounds, getting liquidity for your employees. And so the range of things that you actually have to do in a late-stage company goes up dramatically, or I should say a post-product market fit company really goes up dramatically. And that means that there's lots and lots of different areas that can break. And often those things, the common causes of those breakages are either you have the wrong people in place or you don't have processes that really allow you to coordinate properly across a large, a large group of people. A large group could be tens of people. It doesn't have to be thousands of people. But even then, you tend to need to operate in different ways relative to if you were just five people in a room. A high growth usually means that the product 
of the company is working and the startup it has gone from a successful startup to a high growth company and then there is an optimism that develops within the company and this optimism is great because it can propel the company forward but it can also cause missteps because if the company becomes too grandiose they can overstep their core competency and make some mistakes what are the steps that a CEO should take to manage their own psychology during this high growth period? Yeah, there, there's a lot of different things a CEO should do to manage their own psychology. I think those include, number one, you know, figuring out what are the things that you like to do and things that you don't like to do as CEO and figuring out how to delegate many of the things that you don't like to do. So I, I think a lot of CEOs burn out because they're spending all their time on comp plans or all their time on people issues and really what they want to do is focus on product or on building that the product or selling it. So often it means building out an executive layer that can help deal with those things. Second area is just finding time to recharge. So date nights with your significant other or whatever it may be, taking short vacations, you know, those things become really important, particularly if, if your default nature is to be a workaholic. So I think that's important for recharging. And then third is, you know, making sure that the company is, is sort of broadly heading in directions that you care about strategically and finding the time to sort of pull out from the day-to-day minutia and really be able to think longer term and bigger picture. And I think people often get so focused down in the weeds that they sort of lose that ability. And those two other things that I mentioned really help people take a step back and abstract out a level. In your book, you have plenty of suggestions and rough guidelines around how to manage a high-growth company, but there aren't that many hard and fast rules. It's a lot of pragmatism and suggestions, and you're acknowledging that different companies are going to experience their high-growth state differently. Are there any universal rules of high-growth company building? You know, I think um, the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice. Like, everything is contextual and unique to each company. That said, you know, there are certain things that I do think most companies should do. And those include things like, you know, doing regular one-on-ones with your reports and building out a proper executive team layer that you can delegate to and finding high bandwidth people who can go and execute big functions for you, finance, legal, engineering, product, HR, et cetera. And uh, finding people who've run those functions before or who've grown up in your org and who really have the capability to scale. And so I do think that a lot of it ends up being first about people issues, second about process issues, and then lastly about strategy. And I think that a lot of the, the places where people screw up is either they have the wrong people in place for too long and those people kill the trajectory of the company or they don't think smartly enough about different challenges that they face. I think the other place where companies tend to blow up is they don't have the right set of processes and HR or other things get really out of control. And we've seen that recently with a number of companies in Silicon Valley in terms of HR issues sort of driving the CEO out or sort of driving the demise of the company. And so processes are, are basically broadly applicable towards that. And then lastly, from a strategic perspective, a lot of companies kind of miss their, their true capabilities in terms of where they should be going as, as a company. And so you see these companies that end up as, you know, a $10 billion market cap company, which is amazing, but they could have been a $100 billion market cap company. And those companies are often ones where they just weren't thinking very strategically about what the company should be doing and what, what's the next product and, you know, or, or should they be focused on distribution or should they be focused on new lines of business? And so 
I do think that you see these different levels of sort of failure modes, be it the people level, the process level, or the, the sort of strategy and product level. As these companies grow, you do want to inject some process, as you said, to avoid these kinds of HR issues or the issues that can develop due to a complete lack of process. But you also want to avoid the company taking on too much of a political nature for as long as you can. And the more process that you inject, the more a company can bend towards a political nature. If you're running a startup and that startup is turning into a high-growth company because you've got the product working, how, how can you prolong that startup feel and avoid the tendency towards politics? Yeah, I think there's three or four different things that are mixed in that question. There's what are politics and how do they arise and are they good or bad and how do you avoid them? And usually the term politics implies something bad. You know, the second question is around how do you keep things nimble? And maybe the third is how do you keep attracting people who are excited to work in more of a startup environment? I think in terms of the first point, which is around politics, to some extent, if you're two people, you have politics between you, right? You're trying to convince somebody of something else or to adopt your viewpoint or to do something that you want them to do, and to some extent, that's politics. So no matter what the size of the company that you have, different people will be advocating for different things, and that's actually a good thing in most cases, as long as they aren't advocating for themselves instead of advocating for the company. So I think part of it is figuring out culturally, how do you reinforce constantly that people should be doing the right thing for the company? And if they do that, everything else should fall into place nicely. And in general, what I found is that when people are early in their careers, they tend to worry about themselves a lot at a high growth company. So for example, when I joined Google, I joined around 1,500, 2,000 people. And there was a series of reorgs that happened basically every six months across the entire company because the company was growing so rapidly. I think it went from 1,500 to 15,000 people over two and a half years, or excuse me, three and a half years. And I was constantly worried about, you know, my peers were getting promoted and I wasn't, or, you know, what did it mean that somebody new came into an org and took it over, or all these other things that honestly, I shouldn't have been worried about, you know? And so when uh, my first company got acquired by Twitter, there was a big reorg that was happening in the product org. And Dick, who was the CEO at the time, asked each person to come and tell uh, him what they wanted to do. And many people on the team ended up advocating for themselves very aggressively instead of advocating for the company. Some of them actually got um, fired for that later. Uh, and in my case, I just went in and said, I just want to do what's right for the company. Tell me what you need me to do. It's not about me. It's about the, it's about the company and the organization. And that basically led to me getting promoted and to me doing all sorts of things that I normally wouldn't have done there. So I do think that you, you really have to sort of figure out how to frame things to people early so they understand that there are, in some sense, good politics, I wouldn't call it that, but you know, people should be advocating for their ideas. They should be convincing other people of things that they think are important, but they should also recognize when to do that and when not to do that. What's their real role in a conversation? Are they a decision maker? Are they an influencer? Like, what role are they playing? And then based on that, they may need to back down sometimes and it may not be their decision and that's okay too and they should accept that. And if you teach people those sorts of principles, it actually helps a lot, not only on the politics side, but with the two other points that I mentioned in terms of keeping things more nimble. Because then really what you're focused on is putting in as light a weight of process as possible because there's a lot of trust between people in the organization. But also you realize that a lot of people are just ultimately advocating for what's good for the company versus what's good for them. I think, you know, when I was at Google early, I worked a little bit with Sundar, who ended up as CEO there, and he was notorious for always putting the company first. And so when he spoke in a meeting, people listened very carefully because there was a high degree of trust with him across the team, even at the very early days, 
where people just believed that he was fundamentally going to do the right thing. And therefore, what he was saying was a neutral view in some sense. He was really trying to just trade off things between different choices. And so if that's politics, I think politics are great. Um, if it's people backstabbing each other and advocating for power, and you know, there's examples of that at Google as well, then obviously that's really bad and it creates a bad environment for people. In terms of keeping people nimble, I think that, or keeping organizations nimble, I think there's a few general principles. I mean, one is you effectively want to chart teams over time so that you know, groups are small and you don't have 70 people making a decision. You have much smaller bodies of people who are actually doing or working on specific projects or sub-projects. So one is sort of what's the maximum team size you want each team to get to. And then I think there's other questions around how much is driven top-down versus bottoms-up. And then also what sort of people do you hire? How do you select for people who are more entrepreneurial in terms of either their backgrounds or their mindsets or, you know, even what they did when they were in school or in their jobs? You know, are there people who tended to take initiatives and you know, how do you spot those people? Because those are the people that are um, going to be really valuable for a new environment. You will, however, always want some people who, frankly, don't want to always be constantly reinventing everything. Because if the only type of people you had were people who are constantly reinventing things, as you're scaling a company, that actually leads to chaos. Because there are things that you have to just grind through on a multi-year arc. And so I do think there's trade-offs between uh, nimbleness and stability as well, in some sense. There's also a way in which a focus on unambiguous communication and results-based judgments can avoid politics. And you focus on this from many different points of view in High Growth Handbook, the the avoidance of ambiguity. A, a leader should be unambiguous in their communications, in their conveyance of goals and responsibilities for the people within the company, as well as the fact that you're constantly evaluating, people should constantly be evaluating each other based on results. And this comes in terms of hiring. If you're hiring somebody, if you're hiring a salesperson, for example, you don't want to get charmed by the salesperson. You want to see their results. You want to talk to their references. You want to know that they have been part of some sales initiative that has had material results. If you're evaluating an employee, you want to evaluate them in terms of their KPIs over the last three to six months. And can you actually quantify what they've done? And if if people in the organization are getting rewarded based on these quantitative metrics, then people are going to start to value the negative side of politicking a little bit less, and they'll see that there's an emphasis on on that results-based atmosphere. Yeah, I think that's uh, very true. As long as you can measure the right things, then you can you know reward the right things. I think it's hard sometimes to be able to measure things. I think in sales, actually, it's one of the easiest places to measure things because a salesperson is either, either hitting their numbers or they're not. I think there's lots of other organizations where it's much harder to assess. So for example, say that you're on the litigation team on the legal side of the company and you don't have any lawsuits that year. That's actually a very good thing for the company in some sense, you know, if you're not getting sued by anybody. But your job is to respond to lawsuits. So if you responded to zero lawsuits, are you doing well? Are you doing badly? What should your goals be? You know, so I do think that's completely true. And I think the challenge of a team in a high-growth company is to manage those areas where there is ambiguity naturally. In terms of the the product development side of a company, you have the product management, you have the designers, and you have the engineers, and you write that a successful product manager will write very crisp product requirements. 
and this will foster a, a productive relationship between the product manager and the engineer as well as but I think between the product manager the engineer and the designers because if if the product manager has the crisp product requirements again that lack of ambiguity then the software engineer really knows what the deliverables are and and that's good because the software engineer already has enough ambiguity to resolve themselves in terms of what database do I use and what framework do I use and how am I connecting to this other team and so on you don't want creative freedom from the product requirements side of things. Explain how your ideal vision of the interaction between product management and design and engineering should fit together. Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, when all is said and done, I think that product managers at a very high level, in some sense, act as the cross-functional owner directly responsible for the success of a product. And obviously, an engineering manager is responsible for the engineering deliverables of that, and in some cases more. In the case of designer, the designer, it's really about the design aspects of that. But I think the product manager often also has to deal with all the other aspects in terms of alignment with marketing and sales, and in some cases, finance or legal or other areas. And they, they should be pulling in and collaborating very closely with engineering and design along the way. Uh, when all is said and done, I think product managers are really responsible for setting a crisp sort of product strategy and vision, you know, what's the goal of the product, who's the customer, what are the main use cases, what are the success metrics, things like that. Um, but also thinking through things like who are the competitors, how do we differentiate, what are some of our sales channels. So they should really be thinking a bit more holistically. And I think a lot of product managers today actually don't do that. They tend to be a little bit more like point people on some of these things and that that that's that's sometimes leads to conflicts with, with engineering brothers. I think they also should be number two focused on prioritization. So what are the most important things for the product and how do you prioritize them? And of course, again, they'll be doing this hand in hand with engineering and design. And then I think the two other key areas are basically execution. So, you know, helping to drive timelines, removing obstacles, finding resources, advocating for the product. And then lastly, just communicating and coordinating all the stuff for the rest of the organization. And so I think when I think of great product managers, they're, they're great at um, those four things, you know, product strategy, uh, prioritization, you know, timelines and execution, and then communication. And really, they're, they're meant to be that directly responsible individual who's coordinating the success of the product across the organization, both leading up to launch, but then also after the launch of the product, as you continue to iterate on both the product as well as the market. And I should say, by the way, there's, there's no one-size-fits-all for product management. So I do think there's multiple different types. And so if you're more of an enterprise-centric product manager or sort of focus on the D2B side, You'll also be acting in some sense as the voice of the customer into the product. If you're a consumer product manager, you may be a little bit more focused on sort of what are the sets of delightful features uh, relative to your consumer base. And obviously those things have, have been morphing and merging over time just given how software has changed. But um, you know, at a high level, I think there's different types of PMs as well. Yeah, you break these down in the book, the technical PM, and I think there's some other focuses on categorization of what kind of PM are we talking about here? How did your perspective on high growth companies change as you were writing this book? It's a good question. I think with each of the interviews that I did, so the way the book is structured is there's the tactical advice on different areas of starting a company. So, you know, uh, how do you manage your board? How do you raise stage funding? How do you buy other companies? How, how do you think about product management, marketing, PR, et cetera? So what are different functions we should worry about? Um, 
how do you manage your psychology as CEO? Uh, and then each uh, chapter or a segment basically then had an interview with a practitioner about a specific topic. So there's a top, there's a conversation with Reid Hoffman, who's written this great book called Blitz Scaling around scaling companies around board management. And, you know, how does he think of himself as a board member? Or what does he look for in other board members? So there's this sort of first person practitioner view each section. Or for example, in the area around hiring COOs and should you do it, there's a conversation with Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box, around why he hired a COO and how he onboarded that person and what was that relationship like and things like that. So, you know, it's really the interviews where I think a lot of things uh, came through that I hadn't really thought of before. And, you know, I think that's where I sort of learned the, the most. And I think also there, there were some perspectives that I just disagreed with on certain topics, but I thought it was important to include because, again, it's just opposing advice and ultimately either people running companies or people at companies will get conflicting advice over time and have to choose which piece of it they want to listen to. So I think it actually reflects the way the real world works as well. Yeah. And I think what's good about this book is a lot of it feels very durable. There are aspects of company building that seem to change with the times. Like if you go back and read some, like the Lean Startup, it's a very durable book, but there are elements of that book that have probably decayed over time just because things change in terms of the you know funding environment or the pace of product development or or just cloud the way cloud services can speed things up or the way machine learning like who knows like maybe there'll be some emergent role because of the emphasis of machine learning on uh, or the the effects of machine learning on on product development so it'll be interesting to see which things but i think it goes back to what you said originally like the only good startup advice is that there's no good startup advice i think one of the lessons you can take away from a book like this is what is the meta what are the meta ways of thinking about startups how can you just get yourself in the slipstream of startups so that you're you're thinking about the the changing cadence of what is good startup advice yeah, that, that was definitely the intention of the book. I think there are certain universal themes just because we're people and people act a certain way and they coordinate a certain way. And I don't think it's a mistake that organizations have functioned in some sense more or less the same way for, for hundreds of years if you just look back at the original corporations. And obviously there's big changes in terms of distributed work and other things that are happening now. But when all is said and done, people are people and they interact with each other in certain ways and they care about certain things and their motivations are the same. And really all a high growth company is, is the mass coordination of a group of people to accomplish a common set of goals around a product and market. So when all is said and done, I do think there are some universalities to your point that are driven by the fact that uh, people are fundamentally the same. I think it's Ruop uh, Botha over at Sequoia, he's one of the partners at Sequoia Capital, who has a framework for consumer products where he basically says every great consumer product it's upon one of the seven deadly sins. You know, it could be gluttony, it could be sloth, it could be you know something else. And you start looking at Instagram and other products, and you're like, okay, that makes sense. You know, there's pride, and there's gluttony, and there's this other thing. And so I do think, um, you know, there are these universalities in, in the way people function that are then reflected in companies. And then to your point, there's lots and lots of innovation that happens as well. You came out to Silicon Valley around 2001, and this was just as the internet market was collapsing in that first internet bust. And that early career experience of being in a recession, that must shape your mentality today, either you know, in terms of saving money or in terms of just not taking things for granted. How does the experience of entering the software market during the recession, how does that shape your mentality today? I think it shapes it, hopefully in mainly positive ways. Uh, in part, I think 
we've now had a generation of founders and executives who've never seen a recession or have never seen a real downturn. I mean, 2008, from a startup perspective, was a bit of a blip, but it actually wasn't that strong relative to what happened in financial markets or other things. And so, you know, my first startup was funded in 2008 and I joined Google in 2004. And so, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002 were all really rough, or I should say 2001, 2002 were really rough periods out here, maybe until the early or mid 2000s. And I think it makes you understand that we're not always going to be in a capital rich environment, even though most people grew up in that. And so when capital is plentiful, there's all sorts of things that you can do in terms of business model, grabbing market share, et cetera, that you can't do when capital is scarce. And so for example, if I was running a large private company, I'd probably be rushing for the exits to take the company public so that I could tap into a broader capital base, but also have a stock that I could use for acquisitions or other things, both now, but also uh, during any incoming downturn, because I do think at some point the markets will come down. And usually there's, you know, a three to nine month lag between public markets and private markets. And we, we just saw that in the crypto world where before this latest uh, Bitcoin dip, there was that prior dip from, you know, 20,000 or so down to 6,000. And then six months later, all the private market valuations slammed down pretty hard. And I think in public markets, the same thing, uh, or excuse me, in, in tech equities, the same thing will happen, and it has happened in the past. And so the big concern is we have this big compression in company multiples, and private company multiples will come down dramatically, which means it'll be really hard for people to raise money or to exit. And the people who go out now who raise a bunch of money on public markets, I mean, if they really want to, they can even do a stock buyback later. <laughs> uh, but they also then have a currency, a cash position, and stock that they can use in all sorts of ways as well as they'll be much more attractive to hires. So I do think it sort of colors how you think about both public markets, but then it also colors how you think about capital and when you should be doing uh, capital aggressive businesses of when you should be really focused on sort of the Eric Riesling startup stuff. So we're talking in late 2018, November 2018, and there's been a slight drawdown in the public markets. But it seems that even if there were a complete economic collapse, a la 2008, in the public markets, there's so much untapped potential from just things like cloud and mobile and machine learning and the fact that it's really cheap to build companies today. It's really like startups can be really capital efficient and can still do a whole lot. It's essentially free to start a company with AWS. So it seems like investments in the early stages would at least would probably continue and would would be pretty proliferate especially if if people are sort of uh, patterning on the previous economic collapse you know i I actually i I feel like i hear a lot of people say they're just kind of waiting for the public market to collapse so that they can you know uh, plow more money into into early stage startups do you think that that concern around being able to exit or being able to raise money does that more apply to the later stage companies or does that all do you think that'll also apply and have a have a strong impact on the very early stage startups i think most of the impact will be later stage i think to the points you made it's it's really inexpensive to start a company and because of the reach that internet has now there's never been a time where you could reach billions of people so easily at such large scale and get very large numbers of customers rapidly through a pretty seamless channel, you know, being online. So I do think it's never been easier to start a company. 
the flip side of it is that also means there's a lot more noise. I think there's, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's five, six, ten times more companies today than there were just five years ago. And where the real bottlenecks tend to happen, at least today, is that the Series A, a lot of companies just can't raise their next round if, if they're venture-backed. And obviously, there's lots of models besides just raising money. And being on the venture train, you can bootstrap or you know get paid by customers or other things. But if you are on the venture side, the Series A is still a pretty big bottleneck. And then on the later stage side, there's lots of late stage capital. And I would actually argue that that capital is doing, in some sense, a disservice to a lot of the startups, both early and late, and that it's keeping certain companies going a lot longer than they should. So for example, if you raise a C, but you can't raise an A, you can end up raising two, three bridges on a safe and just keep raising money and keep going. And maybe, frankly, you should have died or exited. And so you're actually tying up lots of really talented people for prolonged periods, working on things which may actually be very bad ideas. Uh, you know, most startup ideas are bad ideas. And it's the handful that are that seem like bad ideas but are actually good ideas that end up doing really well. You know, if, if a, a startup is working on something obvious, it probably isn't a very good startup because if it was obvious, everybody would have done it already. So every startup that really works to some extent has to be a little bit not obvious in one way or another. Right? There has to be some miracle behind the company that turns out to be true and then it becomes massive. And so I do think we're in this weird situation where we're tying up a lot of talent for, uh, for prolonged periods. And so that's one negative of a capital-rich environment. The flip of it is there are certain business models that require a lot of capital that just won't be possible once a lot of the money goes away. And so there are businesses where you do want to invest hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to get market share, or there are businesses where it doesn't make sense to lose a bunch of money for a long period of time. And those will just get tend to get tougher. That doesn't mean they'll go away, but they will be harder to execute if capital markets dry up. You are an investor, but you've also started several companies. You've worked at several high-growth companies. You really have a panorama of different experiences. And I wanted to talk to you about Color Genomics, which you founded in 2013. Your company, the original product, was developing a test for genes that are associated with cancer since then, you've expanded into some other types of testing, like pharmacogenetics. Tell me about the hardest parts of starting and growing a genetics company. Yeah, so the, the impetus for Color was in some sense really driven uh, by my co-founder, Amin Araki's story. He's the, the CEO of Color. And he's very public with the fact that he himself is a carrier of a BRCA2 mutation, which he inherited from his mother and grandmother. And, you know, his grandmother died of cancer. His uh, mother got breast cancer twice. And he himself is at higher risk for certain um, uh, cancers that, that men uh, can suffer from because of this genetic mutation. And so the driver for the company was really that personal experience in terms of asking, how can we help create a cheaper, more accessible version of this product that, you know, at the time cost many thousands of dollars and was very hard for many people to get? An example would be, if you're a woman with, a bre with breast cancer over the age of 45, in terms of when it was diagnosed, your test may not be covered by insurance. Well, if you were under 45, you know, it would have been covered by insurance. And it was really just the age of diagnosis that mattered. You may have had that cancer already. It's just when they found it. And so suddenly you're, you're, you're faced with a four or $5,000 bill. You, you may not be able to afford it. And then you may not know what the right treatment options are for you or, or screening options are for you. Uh, in terms of mammography or other things. So really the, the impetus of the company was to try and be um, helpful to, to large groups of people uh, with their health. I think there's a lot of extra complexity when you're dealing with both healthcare as well as physical products. And in our case, uh, Color is doing both. One is you want to make sure very early on that you're focused on the right regulatory path 
and that you're really focused on being compliant uh, relative to doing the right things from both a regulatory perspective, but also from a patient health perspective. You know, so you don't really want to move fast and break things. You actually want to move cautiously and be thoughtful <laughs> about certain aspects of the product because you don't want to get, uh, you want to avoid a, a wrong result for somebody since it's such impactful information. And so one is just what's the fidelity at which you can launch. I think the second is, you know, if you're dealing with physical goods, it's always much more complicated. So Collar runs a fully automated next generation sequencing lab. So it has, you know, robots, pipetting, liquids to do the DNA testing. It has a big supply chain of different manufacturers that are used as part of that. It ships and receives kits around the country. So it's a much more complicated endeavor than just writing software. And obviously, it's a very software-intensive business as well. There's an enormous amount of work that's been done on the data science and machine learning and e-commerce side of things. But there was that extra complexity of, of physical goods, lab, regulations, et cetera. And so I think the hard part of color were those extra things. So genetic testing is going to have a multidimensional impact on healthcare, or it already is. And you gave the example of your co-founder being, you know, can screen himself for a cancer gene. And if you screen yourself for a cancer gene, maybe you can have more regular checkups for looking for specific types of cancers. You can you can change your, your healthcare regimen based on your genome. What are some other ways that we're going to see genetic testing impact healthcare? So in terms of how genomics will impact healthcare broadly, uh, to some extent, it's one of the really crisp data sets that exists about a person that can really impinge upon multiple aspects of disease, of treatment, of how they should be thinking about different aspects of their life. And obviously, the way you live your life matters a lot, or you should be exercising and sleeping well and not drinking too much alcohol. And you know, there's a variety of things that you should just be doing for baseline health. But in addition, you may be predisposed to different conditions it could be certain forms of cancer, it could be cardiovascular diseases, it could be when you're having children, you know, a lot of people now do different types of carrier screening to make sure that their children don't inherit cystic fibrosis or other, you know, pretty tough diseases. There's other aspects around, you know, how are you going to respond to or interact to everything from different foods to different drugs. And so I do think that there's a lot of wealth in your genome that can really be translated into preventative health insights, or in some cases, things are just more wellness or sort of interest-based uh, for people. So I do think this is sort of a core component of any future preventative health regime that uh, will be rolled out. And it's really interesting if you start thinking about it on the population and sort of nation-state level. So for example, um, if you have a socialized healthcare system, and you're uh, you know, a company that's thinking about who should I be worried about for different types of diseases, there's the demographic and environmental and lifestyle um, information you can use as part of it, but also understanding who's at higher risk, highest risk for cancers early in their life, or who's at higher, highest risk for heart attacks, or other cardiac events, or who's at high risk for familial Alzheimer's. You know, those sorts of things can be really powerful in terms of how you think about the disease burden that your society will face overall, as well as where you should be allocating resources. Like who are the people who benefit most from screening or who are the people who benefit most from certain types of health education? And if you have a lens into the genetics, you actually have a pretty clear view of a reasonably significant proportion of the population for at least a very important subset of diseases. So I do think what we'll see over time is this uh, evolution or emergence of sort of population risk management based on the genetics of populations. 
And that'll, of course, be coupled to the lifestyle and to self-tracking devices and other things. But I do think it's one of the really integral data sets that will make a huge difference. So I'm extremely excited about the future that comes with everybody being tested. And I think at some point, we're going to end up with a scenario where, you know, every baby gets sequenced at birth. And from that point on throughout their life, at different key moments, you should get pushed information that's relevant to that stage of your life relative to your genetics. So if you're in your 20s and 30s, you'll be thinking about um, childbearing and you'll be thinking about certain hereditary diseases. In your earlier days and teens, uh, you may be thinking about drug reactions or allergies or asthma, which are a little bit harder to think about from a genetics perspective, but genetics uh, does play some role. And then as you get older, there's all sorts of diseases, disease states that will really matter. So I think um, your genome, in some sense, will be a very fascinating map to the set of things you have to worry about from a health and wellness perspective over your lifetime. And I'm very excited for the day when it just becomes uh, standard practice. I think one of the challenges with medicine is that things are very slow moving, and a lot of innovations that you you would expect just haven't happened yet. A great example of that is actually the adoption of machine learning or computation-based decision-making in healthcare. So a great example. Let me ask you this. What year do you think the first computer was able to predict what infectious disease a person had better than any professor or any uh, person of the medical staff at Stanford could? Oh, 2007. Uh, it was the late 70s. <laughs> okay. So there was this um, expert system, as they called it back in the day, called the Mycene Project at Stanford. You can look it up. It's super fascinating, where they basically created an expert system that you fed in some data and it would tell you what infectious disease you had and it outperformed the sort of uh, six key experts at Stanford at the time. And so often the problem with healthcare isn't an issue of technology. It's an issue of market structure and adoption. Like there's lots and lots and lots of technologies that can make a huge impact in healthcare today. They just aren't being adopted because the incentives inside the system itself are against it. Indeed. Now, there's a common trope that white-collar jobs like radiologist will be eliminated by technology. And whether or not that's the case, I do hear that in the genetic counseling industry, they can't hire enough people. And genetic counseling is is kind of like radiology in the sense that you need somebody to interpret the data, and you can imagine the gen- the role of the genetic counselor just getting more and more complex over time as we get better and better tools for exploring the genome and exploring treatments and interventions that are associated with an individual's genome, how do you think the role of the genetic counselor will evolve over the next 10 years? You know, I think when all said and done, one of the big issues with healthcare uh, comes back to this lack of technology adoption. And so obviously the role of a genetic counselor is really important. And if you actually look at where they spend their time, you know, on average, a genetic counselor may spend six, seven hours with a patient, or excuse me, on a patient, but only half an hour with the patient themselves. And so a lot of their time is doing things like drawing pedigrees, it's data entry, it's a lot of very manual, repetitive tasks, which frankly, they're probably overqualified for. And so one of the things that Color has done internally for the genetic counselors that works with uh, some of the patients Color um, provides results for is really building out a tool set that allows the vast majority of the genetic counselor time to go to patient care versus to all the things that software can actually do extremely well. And so the premise of color in some sense is software eating genomics or software eating genetic testing. It's how do you take out all the manual, repetitive, in some cases, error-prone labor 
And then therefore, uh, can you use software to reduce costs and to increase accuracy so that the really talented healthcare professionals can spend time on the things that are most valuable for them to do? So I do think that the real issue in the industry isn't just a lack of genetic counselors, it's a lack of tools that allow the genetic counselors to focus on the things that are actually important. You've been involved with both Coinbase and Stripe, and these are two of the companies that are most interesting in the high growth phase right now. And they're both payments companies. What are the barriers to the crypto ecosystem, which would I would consider more closely aligned with Coinbase, what are the barriers to that crypto ecosystem interoperating more smoothly with the conventional payments ecosystem? I think at this point, crypto isn't really that broadly used for payments. I think it's mainly used as like a store value or store wealth. And then in some cases, I, I guess I guess in the case of Ethereum, for example, gas is in some form of payment. Um, so maybe that's, that's the counter example. But at least when I think about where most of the market cap in crypto comes from today, I think it's from this notion of an investable asset that is government and censorship resistant. In other words, nobody can come and seize it from you and nobody can modify a transaction because of consensus and the way consensus mechanisms work. So I do view crypto today as very different from payments, at least in terms of the, the, the primary use case. Obviously, there's lots of secondary use cases and everything from Bitcoin to Monero to Zcash are being used for other types of transactions over time as well. But my understanding is most of the volume is still in, uh, in financial investment um, and store of value. The hope is, of course, that that will change with time. And in the original Bitcoin white paper, there is a lot more focus on payments than there is today in terms of the actuality of how it's being used. I do think a lot of the barriers to entry on the crypto side are around uh, really the long-term barriers are things like regulatory compliance and making sure you're doing the right thing relative to SEC and other government agencies. I think it's security. So you have a huge honeypot of money that if stolen can truly disappear, <laughs> which isn't true of many other types of financial um, transactions unless you're, you're talking about USD, which is still sort of the primary black market currency. And then you have sort of a depth and breadth of tokens that you can offer in part, again, securely. I think it's very easy to offer things insecurely. It's very hard to offer them securely. And then lastly, there's brand. And I think that's really going to matter. Right. Now, in terms of use cases, ICOs were quite a useful financial instrument. They got a bad name quite quickly because ICOs were abused, but fundraising is arguably one of the use cases that has worked the best for uh, cryptocurrencies. Do you see this as a as a viable fundraising? I mean, with like something like Filecoin, or with or with even just with Ethereum itself, these seem like like very viable fundraising use cases that just got lost in a hurricane of garbage ICOs. What are the parameters under which an ICO makes sense? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the great points of confusion for a little bit in the crypto ecosystem was the degree to which the value of Ethereum was driven by a mix of fundraising, which then led to it being used as a reserve currency in a unit of denomination and exchange on a lot of exchanges, which therefore then made it in some sense, along with Bitcoin, a bit of a reserve currency in, in, or store of value in the crypto world. So I do think that a lot of the primary use cases or primary value ascribed to Ethereum today is actually driven by that versus driven uh, by the sort of decentralized global computer side of it. Now, obviously, you need 
that in order to do fundraising and other things through ERC-20 tokens. But fundamentally, I actually think the really exciting part of crypto is the degree to which it's reworking financial services today. Um, it has enormous promise to do other things later, but I think its impact on markets is really the, the super valuable and interesting thing that's emerging from it. And so I do think that there's, there's a lot lost there. In terms of what makes for a good ICO, I think it really depends. It depends on the jurisdiction you're in from a regulatory perspective. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. It depends on the transparency that you're providing to the people who are participating in that ICO. It depends on their expectations as investors. It's kind of like Kickstarter. You know, there's some Kickstarters where people just want to effectively donate their money to a good cause and hope it works. And those other Kickstarters where people are like, I need this product tomorrow and I want you to ship it within the three months that you promise it'll ship in. And, you know, different people participate with different mindsets in, in, on Kickstarter. And I think to some extent, ICOs kind of fill that niche for certain types of software development around decentralized software. Your book, High Growth Handbook, explores lots of historical examples from Intel to Google to PayPal, and these examples are all very useful, but technology startups are still a pretty new phenomenon, and it's it's hard to know which of the past historical examples we should focus on and what lessons we should take away from them. Are there any particular examples or laws from startup history that you think get overemphasized that perhaps we should we should question a little bit more and maybe not go forward with so dogmatically? I think there's tons of um, startup advice, which I don't agree with. And then there's a lot of stuff which I don't think is emphasized enough. So examples of things that I think are overemphasized is I think there's a little bit of a myth around equal co-founders and the fact that you even need a co-founder. Uh, but if you look at most of the most successful companies in history, they had unequal partnerships and there's only a small number of counterexamples to that. And unequal may mean unequal in power, or it may also mean unequal in equity. I think the power thing is more important. But you look at Apple, and Steve Jobs was really dominant. You look at Amazon, it was single co-founder. You look at Facebook, Zuck was dominant, and very unequal split of equity. You look at the S1 filings of LinkedIn, or a variety of other companies, and you, know, you have unequity, unequal equity splits, and there's clearly somebody in charge. And then the counterexamples really tend to be Google, right? In terms of where there was sort of an equitable split, but even then Larry Page was, was a bit more in charge than Sergey was um, until Eric Schmidt came on board. So I do think one of the big myths is sort of this equal co-founder myth that really got accelerated through the Google days. And I think it, it got propagated further uh, more than it sort of deserves. Um, so that'd be one example of something that I think that a lot of people talk about that's just wrong, actually, if you look at the data. The things that I think tend to get underemphasized are the importance of sort of commercial thinking as things start working. So what's the real ongoing product strategy that you're going to be doing? What's your next product line? How do you think about diversifying around the core product that you built? And then how do you really think about your sales channel and distribution as a strategic weapon that you have to use in the marketplace? I think too many founders today get really lost in the, let's just iterate on one core product and they don't really think strategically about distribution. They don't think about marketing very aggressively. They don't think about pricing. They don't think about buying other companies and M&A very aggressively. And so I think a lot of what gets lost is that sort of those lessons from history where if you look at the dominant tech companies, 
Microsoft and others of the prior era, they were very strategic about those things. And that's one of the reasons they ended up dominant. And if you look at some of the biggest companies today by market cap, like a Google or like a Facebook, despite its mistakes, they've actually been very smart about those sorts of things as well. All right. Well, Eli, one more question. I enjoyed your book a lot. And I think my my favorite part of the book was the interviews and, and the fact that you would have you would have these interviews and then you would sort of have, I guess, Cliff Notes versions that that corresponded to the interviews. They weren't exact Cliff Notes, but you would you would have sections of the book that would be about mergers and acquisitions or or fundraising, for example. And then you would have the fundraising, your kind of guidance around fundraising, and then an interview with Naval Ravikant, who is the founder of AngelList, who, so he knows a lot about the granularity of fundraising. So you have these rules, these guidances, alongside a, a long-form interview, which is more of a unstructured way of discussing these same issues. Did you learn anything about interviewing people when you were writing this book? That's a really good question. I actually haven't thought about that. I'm just, I'm just, this is selfish. This is the selfish question, <laughs> obviously, because yeah, it's my I business. Think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I kind of treated it the way that I would any, what I'd call like professional interaction, although a number of these people, you know, I know as friends as well, but I kind of approached it as, let me send them an agenda in advance of what the questions will be so they have time to think about it. So they aren't caught off the cuff. And, you know, if there's a really interesting nugget, let's dig into it further. And let's try and make, make it through in the time allotted. So things tended to be pretty fast paced in terms of the conversations. But honestly, there wasn't too much more thought than that. So I'd obviously, I would uh, appreciate any tips you may have since you've done a lot more than I have in terms of these things. Uh, well, I would say preparation is number one. So it sounds like you already got it. Well, Elad Gill, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Wow.